0: The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivalled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer.
1: Hello and welcome to Coffeehouse Shots, The Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Katie Balls and today I'm joined by... Fraser Nelson, Kate Andrews and James Heal. It's a packed episode. Liz Truss has just given her first major speech on the economy since she left 10 Downing Street. And this comes almost a year to the day to the mini budget anniversary. Here's what she had to say when she spoke at the Institute for Government earlier this morning.
2: Now, some people say we were in too much of a rush. And it's certainly true that I didn't just try to fatten the pig on market day. I tried to rear the pig, fatten the pig and slaughter the pig on market day. I confess to that. But the reason we were in a rush is because voters had voted for change. They voted for change in 2016 and they voted for change again in 2019.
1: And I wanted to deliver that change and I knew we had limited time. James. Let's kick off with you, because you were in the room where it happened. Describe the atmosphere, the audience. Did she get an applause? The response. <laughs> uh,
0: she got some polite applause, yes, but I would say that it was mostly journalists keen. Shock. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but always know that Liz is good for a story. I thought the most interesting attendee was Nigel Farage who was sitting there.
1: Was he there as a journalist or as a political backer?
0: Um, I, would, I wouldn't I would know Nigel's private intentions, but uh, I saw him noddling along at bits of it but I thought it was interesting I mean the Institute for Government is not a forum perhaps most attuned to trust she's her speech of the past year or so have mostly been talking to audiences who you could presume would be in agreement with her in Washington for instance or when she spoke about in foreign policy in Taiwan so it was an interesting kind of format and she gave a speech which was you know, reasonably well received but then I think we moved on to the questions and I think she had a um, it was quite interesting I think it's the first kind of Q and A she's done to a mix of journalists since leaving office, and she, you know, notably several times refused to answer a question about would she consider withdrawing her resignation on this list to make things easier for uh, Rishi sunak she was asked questions about things like her own credibility and the credibility of the conservatives going into it and i think that going away from it i think that it perhaps showed that although that she has got some criticism perhaps i don't think they're going to necessarily find the kind of audience that she would like them to receive
1: now we have been here many times before fraser and kate talking about the trust premiership and what you know went wrong Perhaps what went right initially.
3: I'm the only one who talks about that.
1: Yeah, that's why we've actually got you an extra microphone out and got it put in minutes before we started recording. Um, So Fraser, I suppose to start with you on this, I mean, this was effectively a defence in many ways of decisions she made in her time in office this trust returned to one of her favourite themes, the anti growth coalition. She said, This is now a powerful force comprising the economic and political elite, corporatists, parts of the media, and even a section of the Conservative Parliamentary Party. The policies I advocate simply aren't fashionable at the London dinner party circuit. Do you think that's right, Fraser?
3: Yes, I do. Um, I think it's certainly true that to be a low tax Reaganite conservative, as she would describe herself, is deeply unfashionable right now. By and large, if you hold these views, you're seen to be a relic of the past, somebody who's sitting um, watching Reagan speeches at home every night rather than living in the real world. You can see this also in the um, you know when the Republicans come to choose their presidential candidates those who use sort of what you i'm not going to call it trust side because we're talking sort of free market language what we need to do is to cut taxes to get growth that way that general argument is now seen to be a couple of zeitgeists behind and not in tune with the modern realities of greater demographic pressure, of um, high spending needs, of citizenry which expects protection for more things than it did previously, and of the realpolitik where you can only get elected if you promise to spend, spend, spend. Now, Liz Truss's problem, there were so many problems that it's difficult to name just one of them, but she certainly didn't have any... um, she did, she did not come riding in on an ideological wave. If you look at what Thatcher did, Thatcher spent a lot of the mid seventies on the the Montpellerin Society and trying to talk to the develop the Austrian School. She tried to get of the centre for policy studies under Keith Joseph. There was a sort of intellectual counter revolution, which accompanied Thatcher and which she rode in behind. Now Liz Truss attempted to be her own intellectual counter-revolution, and it failed calamitously. It failed so badly that she gave tax cuts a bad name, and that is the problem. So that's why this week and um, people like me have been s- attempting to disaggregate the aspects of a trust collapse, and say that, um, for example, the conventional wisdom is that she fell because she cut taxes and borrowed to do it, and that was the end of that. That's not true. She her tax cuts were actually quite small, about 25 billion off a. spending, in other words, 2%, relatively small tax cuts. The biggest part of it was an open-ending £10 billion a month subsidy on energy bills, which the markets wouldn't do because of a pensions crisis, which nobody mentioned this was bubbling up. So you had the confluence of these three things. History has been written now to summarise it simply, that this psychopath came along and wanted to cut taxes and borrow to do it, and therefore got what she deserved. I think she is right in saying that there is a coalition of conservatives who make that criticism of her, and also Labour who do, and also any organisation that gets most of its money from the governments, IFS, etc., who would also be unsympathetic to the cause for tax cuts. So it's difficult to make a case now, and intellectually the, um, the case for a smaller government is in a pretty bad way, and she has contributed to make this problem quite significantly worse, I think.
1: Okay, hey, on that spending point, one of the I suppose attack lines from the speech, though you Sunak did not appear to be mentioned by name, um, was the idea that he, or the suggestion that she would have saved more money than he would have, if you look at you know one figure that's been bandied around, you know, suggesting he has spent too much money, and I think that part comes speaking to people around Liz Trust because she. I think does not like the suggestion put by various people, but perhaps in some spectator pieces, that she was actually a high spend Tory. Does she have much grounds to stand on that? She doesn't. I asked last week if Liz Truss was going to try to rewrite history
2: in her book, and it turns out we don't have to wait for her book. She She's tried to do it today, uh, in which she has claimed that public's, holding down public spending was one of the three major priorities in the mini-budget it's honestly borderline offensive to try to rewrite history in that way. This was going to be such a heavy spending budget. The Spectator data team has gone back this morning to look at what was in the growth plan. Not independent analysis afterwards, not from the IFS, not from the OBR later in November, from the growth plan. And it is quite clear that they thought that that energy price guarantee was going to cost £60 billion over the course of six months, upwards of £120 billion possibly for the full year year. This was going to be an extremely high spend budget. I agree with Fraser that this narrative is being written, that Liz Truss wanted to cut tax and the whole thing blew up and that, you know, this is somehow an attack on the anti-tax agenda or for others proof that you simply can't cut tax. I agree that that's the narrative being written. That narrative is being written by Liz Truss. Right. The number one person writing that narrative is Liz Truss because it suits her. It suits her to say that the world came after her because she was trying to cut tax. She was not trying to cut tax substantially. She was trying to significantly increase borrowing. And it's very easy to go back and say, well, look, the spending cuts were going to come. Or she said this morning, oh, look, you know, I was I wasn't going to reopen the spending review. Those would have been real terms tax cuts. They were nothing compared to what at the time Marcus thought she was trying to borrow. And you can retrospectively say it wasn't as much, but her own growth plan suggested that it would be costing an arm and a leg. She cannot acknowledge it. She cannot admit to it. She does not appear to be sorry. And I think we're now getting to the point where hubris is really getting in the way of, of any kind of free market narrative that we want to advocate for in the future because it is in her best interest that we rewrite the story but essentially it's not in anybody else's.
3: We can see culture wars now descending and they seem to have eclipsed any sort of attempt to rationally work out what happened during those 48 fateful days. And I think that the problem here is that Liz Truss herself is basically joining her enemies and coming up with their narrative. I tried to cut taxes, look what happened to me. Her book is called 10 like, Years to Save the West, as you pointed out in your political column this week, Katie, who seems more pitched to an American audience. So she's trying to paint herself as a martyr of low-tax, low-spending economics. In fact, she's ended up as a, a kind of relay race player in running a relatively short period of ground in a succession of high-spending and high-taxing conservatives. Now, perhaps, uh, I suspect, to, to Kate's point, why is she, how can she possibly describe herself? as spending restraint conservative when she was spending like a drunken Keynesian all throughout that time. And I think the reason is, in her head, she regards the energy bailouts as being an exceptional item, as something which everybody had to do. By the way, she's right. If you look at the energy bailouts, we stand in the middle of the European pack. Whoever was Prime Minister probably would have spent, broadly speaking, what she spent, Energy bailouts. I think it was way too much, but I think it should be right to say that this wasn't particularly part of her plan. It was just what everybody had to do.
2: She brought in price controls, Fraser.
3: Oh, she did a whole bunch of other things, which I think. It, no, that and, was uh, the
2: energy price guarantee. It was a mechanism of socialist price controls,
3: and, and various different countries did it pretty much the same way. If you look all across Europe, now, by the way, I'm I don't a, think I,
2: other countries implementing price controls is a reason that we should implement price controls. But go on. Not I, I'm not saying we shouldn't say. have implemented
3: them at all. I'm just saying it was everybody had two or three weeks to every country in, in, in the Western world had two or three weeks to come up with a package like this. It was messy in a lot of countries. It was hugely money wasted in lots of cases. My point is that we're trying to understand what this Truss is thinking. She wants to airbrush out the whole of the energy subsidy package and focus on what she intended. Now, I would argue, and I think you would argue, Kate, it doesn't matter what she intended. She should be judged on what she actually did. And what she actually did was four parts Chavez to one part Reagan.
1: Right, James... Labour wants to talk about the one-year anniversary of the mini-budget. It turns out Liz Truss also wants to talk about it. Mm. Some might have thought, go on holiday, not think about last year. She thought, no, let's go big with her first major speech on the issue. But what do most Tories want to do? Do they want to, you know, pretend it doesn't happen, or or are they already thinking about the debate after the next election? I
0: think in the immortal words of Gavin Williamson, uh, they would want her to shut up and go away. Um, I thought it was very telling this morning that uh, it was Labour MPs, Labour candidates tweeting all about the speech, you know, retweeting her own uh, graphics and saying that, you know, this one year's on, how on earth can she be talking about this? I think, frankly, that there, this is a there is a, I think you make a great point in your, your piece today, Katie, which is that Liz Truss is appealing more to the party than to the country, there are serious questions for the party to answer about it. And there's a really revealing moment in the talk today when she talked about, well this is my character, this is who I am I was always going to embrace an agenda like this. I, I, there was no other way I could have gone into government and not done the things I wanted to do and I think the party is trying to work out Ahead of, if we, can, if we assume they lose the next election, uh, how the party moves forward, they ought to kind of consider the incentives and mechanisms by which they choose their leader. In terms of what the government, Rishi like is probably thinking, I think they have probably rolling their eyes that after a week of bad Labour headlines, rather than talking about that, instead we've got Liz Truss, the spectre of the past coming up. And her very last comments at the IFG today were talking that, yes, she'll be going to party conference and, yes, she'll be uh, much more to say. So I think that numbers will privately be rolling their eyes at the fact that um, Liz Truss isn't going away anytime soon.
1: Yes. Um- I understand she'll have one major intervention at Tory conference. So perhaps number 10 can take heart from that. At the moment, it's, uh, it's limited. But okay. it was, It's
3: was very true, though, wasn't it? She was saying, this is who I am. I mean, the spectator called her Miss Dynamite something like 10 years ago. This is how she rules. But I wonder, James, your point there is should the Conservatives change the leadership contest rules? Because they had a choice mm. between Rishi Sunak, who came across as offering managerialist decline, and Liz Truss, who was saying there is another way. Now, you know...
1: No, she wasn't being completely clear about the things she'd do, would she? Oh, no, she wasn't. She she, she didn't mention,
3: and nor would you expect her to, the energy bailout, etc. But I always had the feeling that the Tory party decided to give the members just two options. Hmm. Had they given three, and the third one was Kemi Badenich, I suspect we'd have Prime Minister Badenich by now.
1: I think had there been two, and it was Liz Truss and Kemi Badenich, it probably would have been Kemi Badenich, given she was the favourite. And on that, thank you, Kate. Thank you, Fraser. Thank you, James. And thank you for listening to what I think will be our our last Liz Truss podcast for a little while at least. Um, Tomorrow we'll get back to Labour and government.
2: I'm sure she'll have another intervention tomorrow.